Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Thursday, March 14, 2019, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. In this talk, Professor Stephen Kotkin discusses the complicated geopolitical conflicts of the 21st century involving the U.S., China, Russia, and Iran. Thank you. Uh, Good evening, everyone. It's great to be back. I see some familiar faces, so I wonder if you paid close attention to the last lecture I gave. (laughs) I see some people I went to college with. I wonder if there's going to be any revenge tonight, telling people what happened at college on those little note cards. I hope not. I see one of my publishers is here also. Uh, In the old days, I used to tell some jokes to lighten the mood a little bit, but uh, we're going to try to be serious tonight. So I don't know if you've been to Washington lately, but this is the White House now. And you can see it's, it's been rebranded as if it's permanent. Yeah. So like I say, tonight we're going to try to be much more serious than is typical for my lectures, given the gravity of the subject. Okay. So uh, normally people would talk about uh, the chaos caused by the Trump administration. And so we'll go through a little bit denouncing your allies and praising your adversaries. It's very unusual for a president. Exiting, right, the the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the Paris Climate Accords, the Iran nuclear deal, threatening to exit NATO and various other things. And so, in fact, these chaotic actions have sparked, finally, a debate about whether the United States should be doing all of these things simultaneously. Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya, the size and cost of NATO and everything else. Uh, But because Trump is so chaotic, we actually haven't had the genuine debate yet. But uh, Trump has had the effect of making us think about what could be the limits of American engagement globally. Should we be everywhere and be doing everything? Okay, so it's very easy to ridicule Trump, obviously, For those of you who watch cable television, you know how easy it is, right? Or his his method of uh, negotiation, right? However, underneath this, there's an underlying logic, and I would summarize it this way, right? Reduce foreign commitments, demand more of allies, and find common ground with most adversaries, So that's actually Trump's foreign policy, more or less. Despite the style, which is very chaotic, these are the core elements of the foreign policy. Reduce foreign commitments, because we have too many, demand more of allies, because they don't do enough, and find common ground with adversaries, because it's very difficult to be uh, in conflict with all the world all the time. Guess what? 
That was President Obama's foreign policy. Yes, I know he's a different personality, a little bit more urbane, a different type of speaker, etc. I understand that stylistically they're from very different ends of the planet, but nonetheless, these core elements were there in Obama's policy too. So it tells you that there's some larger structural problem. If both Trump and Obama can have a similar foreign policy in substance, not in style, but in substance, it's because America is overstretched and over-militarized. Okay. The problem for both Obama and Trump is that as they try to reduce the foreign commitments, demand more of allies, and find the common ground with most adversaries, the world pressures keep undercutting this attempt to restrain uh, America and reduce our costs. The same thing is now happening with Trump. Okay. So, in other words, this is what the lecture, maybe you expected it to be about, which I understand why you expected it to be about, this. But in fact, this is what the lecture is going to be about. You see this box of chaos that Obama handed off to Trump, And if there were a previous photograph uh, drawing, it would be, uh, of course, Bush handing the same box uh, to Obama, and he inherited the whirlwind and had trouble with it, and now being handed off. And, of course, the next time I give this lecture, we're going to hope, at least you're probably going to hope, that there's another caricature, not this one, on the receiving end, but it could be the same box, unfortunately. All right. So let's go through quickly Middle Eastern policy just to see a concrete illustration of the point I'm making. So Afghanistan. Uh, We bombed it, we invaded it, and we occupied it. So how'd that work? (laughs) Iraq. Bombed it, (laughs) invaded it, and we occupied it. How'd that work? Pretty, pretty clear, right? Libya. Remember that one? It's way out of the news now. Uh, we bombed it, we didn't invade, and we didn't occupy. How'd that work? <laughs> and Syria. We didn't bomb, we didn't invade, and we didn't occupy. And how'd that one work? More deaths in the case of Syria, although no small number in the case of Iraq, obviously. So if you look through this, it doesn't look very promising. And that's because outside power involvement in the Middle East rarely leads to anything good. That's called history. (laughs) So later, of course, Trump did bomb Syria, but now he's abandoning it, or he's trying to abandon it to Russia, Iran, and Turkey. But many people are objecting to this in the foreign policy establishment in D.C., So while not everything Trump is trying to do is correct, uh, you can see if this is what after, that the idea of getting out of some of these places, come what may, is appealing to uh, Trump. But of course, he's up against the American establishment, which thinks this is a mistake. So I'm not saying Trump is correct. I'm just saying that there's a larger structural problem here that Obama also experienced and that Trump is experiencing. And that is 
that it's a little bit too heavy bearing this burden. It's just the Pax Americana. This is called the, the liberal world order. When you read a liberal uh, newspaper or you watch a liberal cable TV, and it's uh, America's support for the, for the global order as it exists. So it's not, we're not capable of going forward the same way. That's the short answer. So Obama tried to cut the nuclear deal, six countries, not just the U.S., with Iran. And as you can see, it's portrayed as a pig that flies, making a mockery of Obama's policy, right? It's a bird, it's a plane, a miracle of diplomacy. And you can see the Republicans are trying to shoot it down, right? And so nobody is going to defend in the establishment on the Republican side the Iran nuclear deal, which has now been repealed by Trump. So here's Trump confronting Iran while the North Koreans walk through with their bomb. (laughs) So you tell me what the difference here is. Both of them, right, both of them are worried about nuclear weapons proliferation, but neither policy is really working. So you can see that the the North Korea thing is done. Uh, We're not going to reverse the fact that they're a nuclear power now. Okay. Although South Korea seems a lot less worried about it than the American foreign policy establishment, and they live there. So that's an interesting clue for us. Okay. So so that's my introduction, just to try to indicate that there are larger problems that are not caused by Trump, and Trump is not in some ways a symptom of those problems, and in many ways Obama uh, had the same problems. And anybody who succeeds Trump will at some point have to confront this also, or it will continue to deteriorate as it has. So this is what the world looks like on cable TV for the most part. There's this giant thing, Russia, where President Putin is taking over the whole world, and he's marionetting President Trump. Then there's this Iran, which is this horrible, difficult problem because they they cause tremendous grief all throughout the Middle East. And then there's this new competitor, China, which, of course, we help build up. That's what the world looks like, but that's not the world you're going to hear about now. So here is data on military budgets as a percentage of the U.S. military budget. This is the kind of thing you won't see on the cable TV, right? So uh, as you can see, the military budgets of China, Russia, and Iran are under 50% combined of the U.S. budget as of 2016, but they're growing and they may grow towards 70% by 2027, meaning the three of them combined would have 70% of U.S. defense spending on current trajectory by 2027. Is that because Iran is taking over the Middle East? Uh, The green part is Iran's defense budget. As you can see, Iran's defense budget is not growing. You know why? because Iran doesn't have a military. Iran's entire defense budget has gone from 2% of U.S. to about 4%, 4 to 5% of the U.S. defense budget. The Russian defense budget is the red line. And you can see that it's pretty much stable in size 
at about 10% of the U.S. defense budget. The problem is that the blue area, which is China's defense budget, has gone from 5% up towards 40% or so, 45% projected by 2027. So if you're in Washington and you care about these global issues and you're looking for a world order that can uh, ensure peace and prosperity, are you going to focus on the green part? Are you going to focus on the red part? Or are you going to focus on the blue part? So if you go back to this, obviously, this is not your problem, this is not your problem, this is your problem. And the scale of difference between them is astronomical. These are small footnotes to what the China challenge is. Okay. So China's defense spending officially, you can see, about 180, 175 billion in 2018. But the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute estimates it at even larger. So if you took the actual data that Stockholm estimates, and there are the pros in this, then this is even higher percentage of the U.S. budget. So that's where it is. It's in China. Now, once again, here's your Middle East where we pay so much attention and seems to preoccupy us, where we don't do so well when we intervene. If you look at the dark green, that's Shia, and the lighter green, that's the Sunni populations, right? Sunni Islam, Shia Islam. So there's a crescent of Shia and a crescent of Sunnis. And so Iran's power is inherently structurally limited by the fact that there's this giant Sunni population that's not well disposed towards Iran. And in fact, Iran cannot take over the whole Middle East because the Shia population ends and the Sunnis become a majority on the other side of this. So that's a built-in limitation to Iran's power, whether they like it or not. In fact, here are your defense budgets, and I'm sure you knew that Saudi Arabia has the third largest military budget in the world. I'm sure you knew that, larger than Russia. Right? Yes, I'm sure you did. <laughs> the Bone Saw Kingdom is number three. It's a very distant number three to China. And remember, Stockholm estimates China's more over here than over here. But nonetheless, you can see. You see Iran's defense budget over there? No. Okay. So here's the Saudi defense budget, and here's the Iranian defense budget. The big circle is about 50 billion, so this is slightly bigger than that. So Saudi is over 60 billion, and the small circle is 10 billion. There's the difference between the defense budgets of Saudi and Iran. Okay. So, so much for the fact that the world is not quite maybe always what we think it is in terms of where the threats are and what we should be preoccupied with. Now I'm going to switch for the remainder of the lecture to the focus on the China piece. I hope I've introduced to you the idea that the Middle East is not where we should be spending the majority of our resources and attention. And moreover, we don't fully understand the Middle East uh, the way it is in reality, not because we're dumb people, but because we watch cable television. 
Moreover, we do that voluntarily. <laughs> Nobody compels us to watch it. That's the most astonishing thing. <laughs> okay. So the G7 are the seven most, the seven richest countries in the world. Uh, the group of seven, it was invented by George Shultz, who was Treasury Secretary a long time ago. And they used to be 70% of global GDP, and now they're 46% of GDP. So they're all much richer than they used to be. Britain is much richer than it used to be. France is much richer. Germany is much richer. They're all incredibly richer. The United States is much richer than it used to be. But combined, they're less weight in the global uh, economy than they used to be, even though they're all richer, because China and India and everybody else has been developing. And guess whose policy it was to develop those places? to integrate them into the global economy. So we have had a tremendous success. We created an international economy, a global integrated economy, in order to bring peace and prosperity to places around the world besides the G7. And we succeeded. Uh, But we weren't ready for that success. Because that success, which was our policy, has reduced our weight in the world. Okay, so the rise of the rest, especially China, was facilitated, made possible by U.S. power in the world. And it is now reducing U.S. power in the world, as you would expect. If China goes from a per capita GDP of $140 per person, which is what it was under Mao, to more than $10,000, per person. It's now about 14000 You would expect that success to want to have a say in the international order. That would be logical. And that was our policy. That's what we've done. But we are not ready for the fact that we helped create these other countries that are now in uh, their economies that are now demanding a say in the international order. So we have to compete better with China and invest in the U.S. Remember competing, investment, infrastructure, human capital? Remember all that stuff? Now we got people who can't sail a boat but get into Stanford even if they can't sail a boat. (laughs) That's how we compete with China now. Now, had I known that you needed to be on a boat in high school, right? I didn't know. That's why I didn't get in anywhere. I was stupid. I didn't know anything about sailing. All right. So here we are. This is the world we created. The green is the share of British world trade. You can see that the British created the global economy They were once 20% of all global trade, one country, Britain. And then you can see the blue, the United States, around 1900, passed Britain and became the leading country in world trade. Never got back to the British highest point, but still pretty well. You can also see that China was never really a big part of world trade. And then all of a sudden, under the reforms more recently, China is now the leader in global trade. 
And this happened because we created the possibilities to allow China to do this. And they have succeeded because they're very entrepreneurial and dynamic and impressive. So that's the new world now. The new world where China is the number one trading partner of most countries. If you look at the ports around the world where China has a 50% plus ownership stake, this is what the map looks like. All of these ports, China is the majority owner now. It's pretty astonishing. Next map you would see in about two or three years, undersea cables, which carry the internet. China is building that connectivity out also. And of course, 5G and other connectivity technologies. Because they're not fake sailing boats to get into Stanford. Here is corporate R&D in China. They're the red line. Right? Pretty good. You can see China's red, US, Japan. It's hard to read. EU. China has passed the EU in corporate R&D, closing in right on US and Japan. Hard to believe that corporate Japan and corporate US will soon be investing less than corporate China. But that's our world now. Here are STEM graduates. I have a son who goes to a STEM high school here in New York. Of course, it's 70% ethnic Chinese. They're mostly from Queens. It's Stuyvesant High School. Here are your STEM graduates, and guess who the red is? Yep, look at this. So that's our world now. That's what the problem is. Here's China's Belt and Road. So all of Eurasia being oriented towards China. Soon, Hungary, Germany is already China's biggest, uh, China's already Germany's biggest trading partner. So instead of the transatlantic world, the whole thing is bending, bending towards China. Not, once again, not because they're bad people, because they're very successful, and we are not properly competing with them. You can prevent and you can say you can't do this and it's against the law to buy our companies. But how about investing in yourself? That's a different problem. So how did this happen? A lot of wishful thinking going way back before Jimmy Carter, right through Clinton, the Bush family, Obama. right? Authoritarianism can only work when it's a peasant country modernizing and you just kind of force them into the future. Eventually, authoritarianism supposedly stifles growth. And once you get to middle income status, you must adopt American-style governance to grow really rich, otherwise you stagnate. If authoritarian regimes refuse to liberalize, their new middle classes force them to do rule of law and separation of powers, constitutional government. This, was, this is called social science. <laughs> they teach this where I'm employed, in the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. None of this happens, somehow, and so you start predicting China's collapse because they're violating our rules, right? They're not uh, subject to our rules, so something's wrong, they must collapse. 
unfortunately, they don't collapse. And so now it's like, uh uh-oh, what did we do? We created this great power rival, and now they're going to beat us at our own game. Yep, that's called America-China policy. As again, once going all the way back to Jimmy Carter. So here's something interesting. This is our friend, President Trump, talking about China. So now you can see Trump has changed the conversation in the United States to make uh, us think about China as a serious competitor and challenger. Whatever else you think about President Trump and the trade war and all the other stuff, he's changed the conversation domestically in a big way. We all now understand what I just showed to you, which is that China is a serious competitor. Look at the date on this. 2011. He was just a TV personality when he tweeted this. This is a long-standing view that Trump has. So he's right to confront China, although he's doing it in his chaotic Trumpian way, which is not solving the problem, but at least we're having the conversation. All right, I'm going to show you a little bit. Let me check for time. I always give an academic the mic and you run into trouble. This is the South China Sea, the Spratleys. These were the coral reefs. Remember those coral reefs? Here's Mischief Reef in 2014. See the coral? It's way out in the middle of the sea. That's Mischief in 2014. That's Mischief in 2015. That's Mischief in 2016. Does that take your breath away? Anybody land at Kennedy Airport recently? Yeah, look at the infrastructure here. You see that? That's a military landing strip on a coral reef. Once again, now you can complain that they cheat and that they steal, but you know what? They build. This is a marvel of engineering out in a difficult spot. First of all, the daring when everybody said you can't do it and they just went and did it. And then the engineering feat. So this is our new competitor now. That's what it looks like from the air. That's a uh, U.S. uh, uh, military photograph. You see this? These are dredgers dredging the sand that built this in the middle of the ocean. So if you look out now on China's coast, right, there's this little piece here called Taiwan. And I'm going to spend the last 10 minutes or so talking about the Taiwan piece. Because it's the Spratleys I just showed you, the Mischief Reef, the Coral Reef, uh, Paracels, where they put also a lot of military stuff, Scarborough Shoal, which is one of the most amazing points, very close to the Philippines. Right? We have military bases and military alliances here, as I'll get to in a second. But I want to focus a little bit on Taiwan. So Taiwan's status quo is that the place is... Uh, de facto independent, but is claimed as a part of China, as a territory of China. So in law, de jure, it's not independent, but in fact, it enjoys a certain measure of independence, right? Okay. So China claims the island under its so-called one China policy, which the U.S. recently affirmed under President Trump again. Right? There have been many tense moments, but the status quo is held. And China's strategy has been to integrate Taiwan economically 
which would eventually lead to Taiwan wanting to join China politically. So here's the problem. 40% of Taiwan's exports go to China. 20% of Taiwan's GDP derives from China. But the Taiwanese no longer identify as Chinese. They're identifying more and more as Chinese only. I'm sorry, as Taiwanese only. 55.3% now just Taiwanese. Chinese only 3.8%. So the economic integration has not led to political integration. It's led to the opposite. 75% of Taiwanese think Taiwan and China are separate countries. Pretty spectacular, right? So China's policy, remember the illusions that if we integrated China economically, it would have to become like the United States politically? Remember that wishful thinking of U.S. policy? Here's the wishful thinking of Chinese policy. Integrate them economically, and now they think of themselves as more politically separate than ever. So can Beijing allow this? Can it allow Taiwan to drift farther away from identification with mainland China? which is what's happening, especially the younger generation. You probably uh, know that uh, under the Taiwan Relation Act of 1979, the U.S. supports uh, Taiwanese uh, uh, sovereignty. Okay. So here's Xi Jinping saying this can't go on forever. We have to bring Taiwan back. And here's one of our, the chairman of the Homeland Security Committee in the Congress, I think at some point we're going to have to recognize the independence of Taiwan. So there's no middle ground here. Either Taiwan is part of China or it's not part of China. Either the U.S. stands up and defends Taiwan or it doesn't. That's the situation we're in. So here's that mischief reef, right? Here's the Philippines. This is called the first island chain, Japan, Taiwan, Philippines. The U.S. has military bases or military presence on the first island chain. The Chinese are pushing the U.S. out to the second island chain. Break the alliance with the Philippines, break the alliance with Japan, and, of course, reclaim Taiwan. If the U.S. fails to defend Taiwan, if the communist China is able to claim Taiwan and the U.S. doesn't defend it, who's going to believe that the U.S. is going to come to their defense in any other alliance system. So you break this, and you break everything simultaneously. That's the situation we're in. So it's very tempting for Xi Jinping. He goes into the history books, historic reunification with Taiwan. Right? He gets to unravel the, potentially the entire alliance system of the U.S. in East Asia and just kick them out. And then he's got Taiwan to use, as this MacArthur called it, unsinkable aircraft carrier and submarine base to project Chinese power even further. Push the U.S. all the way out. So Sinocentric order in the Middle East, uh, in East Asia, right? Out to the second island chain, Guam, and then maybe bite off Australia, neutralize Australia, right? And, and obviously, Korean Peninsula, get the U.S. out of the South Korea. So this is actual Chinese strategy 
but we are quite preoccupied with uh, Putin marionetting President Trump while all of this is going on. Okay, thank you for your attention. I brought that, I brought that one in on time for once. Yeah. Thank you, Alex. Okay, they say they screen the crazy ones, unfortunately. Those are usually the good ones. So we're left with these are supposedly not crazy. Have we avoided a devastating trade war with China, or is there still reason to worry? So the problem with China is that we encourage China to do what it's doing. We allowed them to join the WTO, for example, in 2000, without them fulfilling the conditions of entry. And President Clinton gave a big speech when he said, they can't block the Internet. They're going to change politically. They have no choice. Blocking the Internet is like nailing jello to the wall. Well, they got jello nailed to the whole wall, the Great Wall of China. There's nothing but jello nailed to it right now because they block the Internet when they need to pretty successfully. So uh, the trade war is not about what the actual problem is. The trade war is about a deficit in trade between the two countries, which relates to what we buy from them versus what they buy from us and and also currency exchange rates and some other factors. The trade war was imposed on Americans. We're paying higher costs, either as producers or consumers for the goods, And it has driven private Chinese companies back into the hands of the Chinese state. The private Chinese companies are the things that the Chinese state worries most about. Because in a communist system, when you have economic wealth, you have independent power. So if you have a big business that's independent from the state, the state gets afraid of you. But... If you impose a trade war and the only one that can defend you is your Chinese state, the private sector in China is forced for its own self-defense to get closer to the very government that it wants to separate itself from. So the trade war is exactly the wrong tactic you would use to get China to live up to its commitments like the WTA World Trade Organization commitments, right? Instead, you would want reciprocity so, for example, if we have rule of law and Chinese courts can, uh, Chinese companies can sue U.S. companies for violation of contract in a U.S. court of law, you need reciprocity on the Chinese side for American companies in courts of law. And if you don't get it, then you don't give it to the Chinese on our side, right? Reciprocity issues. We're very far from having an intelligent policy vis-a-vis China. And the trade war thing is, as I said, costs imposed largely on us and against those elements in China that are more on our side, the the large private sector. And so this is the opposite of what you would do to get the Chinese to behave differently, but it is the way that President Trump has changed the domestic conversation for us to focus on China. My argument, once again, is that we need to outcompete them Invest in human capital, invest in infrastructure, 
in, invest in good governance, right? Invest in demonopolization of our economy so that we can innovate by uh, companies having lower costs to enter the market. We're not doing any of those things, unfortunately, because we're preoccupied with terrorism in the Middle East, with President Putin and uh, Russian interference. Uh, which is uh, largely uh, exaggerated, although a serious problem, but not the problem we think it is. In any case, so I'm not in favor of the trade war, and I'm not that worried about the trade war in the long term. I'm more worried about that graph of STEM graduates in China versus STEM graduates in the United States. I'm more worried about the infrastructure gap that's opened up. I'm more worried about Uh, our political paralysis rather than the good governance we used to have. I'm more worried about weaponizable uh, social media, right? So President Putin, he was a genius. Way back when, he decided to send a kid to Harvard, not graduate the kid from Harvard, and have the kid steal the software from his roommates and start a company in Menlo Park so that that company, many decades later, could be used to interfere in U.S. elections, right? Trump, of course, created Facebook. I'm sorry, Putin, of course, created Facebook, right? It's nonsense. We created Facebook. These are issues that we have to face up to. If they are using Facebook to interfere in our democracy, who created Facebook? Is it their weapon or is it ours to take care of, right? Sometimes we have to look in the mirror about some of these things. All right. As the growth of the Chinese economy slows, what type of impact will this have on the economies of the U.S. and the EU? Another excellent question. Since 2008, the Chinese economic statistics have been bigger lies than they were before that. When they had the international financial crisis, the Chinese Communist Party decided that they would not experience a a significant slowdown in growth. They decided this on the top. It wasn't decided in the economy. So local officials were incentivized to submit higher GDP rates at the local level. The problem is, is that the local statistics and the national statistics, the aggregation doesn't work. They're clearly out of line because they're inflating the GDP statistics. In China, GDP is not a measurement, it's an output. It's a target that you must reach no matter what. So what size is the Chinese economy right now? If you measure it by all sorts of proxy measurements, which is what the people, for example, do at J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs and other places, if you measure it by electricity consumption or various different other measurements, it could well be that the Chinese economy today is 20% smaller than they're claiming it to be. And it could be that economic growth is not over 6%, but it could be as low as 2% or even 1.67%. So China has gone into a significant slowdown and has not had the boom since 2008 that it's claimed to have. So they are now having not a crash. They're not unraveling. This is not the end of the China story. The economy is still gigantic. 
They still have significant pockets of innovation. They're still investing like gangbusters. But they are no longer growing at the clip. Anywhere near they were growing, and the slowdown is bigger than it was before. So what are the implications for us? China's growth has never been the principal driver of American prosperity. The principal driver of American prosperity is America. It's our economy, and it's our ability to invest in those things that drive productivity. So we cut the taxes on the corporations in order to bring it more into line with uh, global trends on uh, uh, corporate tax. And instead of seeing an investment boom, we saw them buy the shares back. Right? We've seen a tremendous amount of navel-gazing and other expressions that I could use having not to do with thinking long-term, making the world better for your kids and grandkids, but take the money and run in the present, this kind of short-termism. It's not true of everybody, and many companies are going in the, in the long-term direction and doing the big investment, but as a, as a whole, we don't see enough of that. That's where America will rise and fall. Nobody can defeat America except America. Nobody. We're the only ones that can ruin what the Founding Fathers created here and is what on display in the New York Historical Society Library. Do I think that Japan could go nuclear? I thought we screened these. (laughs) The big issue for Japan is, is the United States there for Japan if they have a conflict with China? As the Chinese economy slows... We could potentially, it's not a foregone conclusion, we could potentially see adventurism abroad. If, for example, you have uh, higher unemployment, right, big joblessness at home, if your wages stagnate, if your disposable income stagnates, you stir up a little bit of nationalism, a little bit of jingoism, you talk about the the evil Japanese and what they did during World War II, and you create a potential confrontation like over disputed islands, the so-called Senkaku Islands, uh, which are disputed between China and Japan. So if Japan comes under pressure from China, because China feels the need to stir up trouble to keep the population distracted from the economic slowdown, Japan has to make a choice. Will America go to war on behalf of Japan? We're treaty-bound to do so. But if things happen where America doesn't keep its word and American credibility comes under question, like, for example, you talk about how your alliances are a waste of time, they cost too much money, you're not sure that you should keep them, right? You talk about how your friends are stealing from you and they're they're free riders, etc., The more you undermine the credibility of your alliance system, which is something China doesn't have, a major alliance system that we do have, it's one of our great advantages, the more you do that, the more you push Japan into directions that it wouldn't take otherwise, including doing deals with China and breaking the U.S. alliance or potentially developing their own nuclear deterrent, which, of course, they could do rather quickly. All right. Can I, ha- do I have any more questions or is that it? Yes, you, you want to 
All right. I don't mind the screening. Uh, do China's looming uh, demographic challenges weaken China's outlook? Yes, they do. China has tremendous problems at home. Ecological challenges, demographic challenges. Because of the one-child policy, China is soon going to have more retirees, potentially, than workers coming into the workforce. There are not enough kids in the younger generation to support continued economic growth, right? Economic productivity is more people in the economy. That's why immigration usually fuels productivity, even if it has other costs. More workers and more work from each worker, usually because of technological innovation. Higher productivity is what drives GDP growth, and it what it drives the prosperity that we've enjoyed as a generation and we hope to pass on to our kids and grandkids, as I was saying. So if you don't have enough workers coming online, then you end up with a limit on productivity and therefore growth, potentially. And China is hitting that already. So yes, the answer, but of course, it's worse in Japan. It's worse in South Korea in terms of the birth rates, in terms of the new... Uh, workers coming online as they mature into adulthood. So it does weaken China's outlook, but it's not clear that it weakens China's outlook relative to other places. If you don't have significant immigration, there's a ceiling on productivity. Immigration has been a very important driver for American economic boom. That's not to say that it always is, It's not to say it doesn't have other costs, and it's not to say we shouldn't debate what level of immigration we have. But nonetheless, if your workforce is shrinking because women are having fewer children, you don't grow at the same fast rate. And so China has that problem, but it's not their biggest problem. China's biggest problem is that they're communists. (laughs) That's the big secret. They're communists. So when Clinton said that the Chinese would liberalize because they had no choice, you know, you grow, you get rich, and then you have to go to a liberalized political system in order to continue to grow, go from middle income to super rich to join the G7 in terms of wealth, right, when Clinton had that idea. And that's why the Chinese were let into the World Trade Organization in the year 2000 without meeting the conditions. Well, uh, Eventually, we thought they'll liberalize, but they didn't. Why? Why didn't the Chinese liberalize their political system? Because they study history. What communist system liberalized and is there to talk about it? None. All communist systems that attempted to open up and to liberalize their political system, they're gone. They're finished. Because communist liberalization is a political bank run. It's auto-liquidation. And so the Chinese have studied these cases, Hungary in 1956, Prague Spring, Czechoslovakia in 1968, Gorbachev in the Soviet Union in the 1980s. And every one of them finished. So why would they take this chance? Sure, the Chinese could be different. Maybe they're the one exception where they liberalize and it works. And they come out the other side with a more open political system and the Communist Party is still in power. But they're not going to take that chance because they don't like the odds 
based upon every single previous case. So the Communist Party can't liberalize. They're stuck. That's China's big problem. And when they grow the private sector, and these people, you know, private wealth, you have independent power. You don't need the Communist Party to tell you what to do. In fact, you can tell them what to do. So you see, after the private sector grew really big, the Communist Party tried to put a chokehold back on the private sector in China. That's what we see now. Because they're afraid of it. Are they afraid of intellectuals and dissidents? No. Of course they're not afraid. Who the hell is afraid of an intellectual, And a, if you've ever met one? <laughs> I mean, seriously. What kind of threat do they pose? Honestly. Moreover, the intellectuals in China are more Marxist than the communist rulers are. They're all very far to the left. It's incredible. So they're afraid of the private sector. They're afraid of independent business people. You know, there are these uh, blogs in China explaining uh, how you start your own business. You know how many hits they get in a month? 20 million, 40 million, 60 million. Yeah, that's right. Because that's where it all comes from. That's where this whole China piece comes from. Striving, dynamism, education, entrepreneurialism. We talk about how they steal the technology, and they do. But they're not only stealing the technology, they're inventing the technology at the same time. And moreover, stuff that they steal, they sometimes make better after they've acquired it. Right? So that's the problem for the Chinese communist regime. Demographics, sure. But more importantly, the political system is inflexible, incapable of opening up and liberalizing. And so they're scared of their shadow. The communist regime is scared to death in China. And it's attempting to clamp down and control, especially the private sector. And so what does I said? What does our trade war do? It's driving Chinese private sector companies into the hands of the Chinese Communist Party to defend them against the trade war. What policy would you not do of all the options vis-a-vis China? The one thing you would never do, because it would be shooting yourself in the mouth, is to do a trade war and drive the private sector into the hands of the communist regime. Do I got one or more left? Yeah. All right. I know you guys are going out on the town tonight. You're going to need a glass of wine. You're going to need to rearrange your portfolios. (laughs) That emerging markets index fund you're in. (laughs) That thing is just crap. It's stuffed with Chinese garbage that's fake statistics and is... You got money in that, and you're hoping to send your kids sailing into Stanford (laughs) with that money? You better leave the lecture now and get that crap off your portfolio immediately. Yeah, I know. I know. What, What do I have my money in? Right? I have my money in dislocation and disruption. Anything where the world goes bad, I make money. (laughs) I wonder why. I wonder why that's where my money is. Because I study history. (laughs) 
That's how you make your dough. What would have been the impact of the Pacific Trade Deal, the Trans-Pacific Partnership of 12 countries that was negotiated for a really long time and that President Obama almost got over the line, but he kind of ran out of time, and then President Trump came to office, and, of course, like Dracula, uh, he put the stake through the heart of that. Well, in the campaign, Hillary Clinton came out against TPP, even though it was negotiated while she was Secretary of State. Moreover, treaties have to be ratified in the Senate, and it wasn't clear to anybody that there was a majority in the Senate for ratification. So Trump could have done nothing, and it could well have been that TPP would have still failed. Because we're a democracy. (laughs) And that's what our representatives do. What our representatives do is they panic when anything gets difficult. And they cut and run. So the Pacific trade deal was an excellent trade deal and had more... uh, um, protections for the environment and for workers than previous trade deals had. Moreover, the Chinese were scared of it, which tells you already what a good idea it was, because they were excluded from it. And moreover, the countries that joined it were willing to make concessions to the U.S. because they were so happy to finally get an instrument that would rebalance things a little bit and reduce dependency on China. So if you could start all over again, you would bring it back. And you would try to do it very much like the deal that was killed. In fact, there was a debate inside the Trump administration um, to to do just that. uh, But unfortunately, it was killed, I think, by by Trump himself. Should we be concerned about a potentially stronger relationship between China and North Korea? It's hard to get any stronger than the relationship is right now. So I don't think we should be concerned. In fact, the North Korean move, which made the summit take place in Singapore, first there was the Olympics, then there was Trump for the first time an American president meeting the head of North Korea, representative of the Kim dynasty. What was that about? That was about the fact that China has a chokehold on North Korea. And the North Koreans were trying to get a little air and some separation. Because everybody likes to benefit from business with China, but they don't like China to dictate all the terms all the time. And so the North Koreans were trying to rebalance their relationships by getting a better relationship with South Korea and the U.S. But they're not going to give up the nukes, because they know if they give up the nukes, they're toast, like Gaddafi in Libya. So I'm not worried about a stronger relationship between China and North Korea. I'm worried about the failure of the U.S. to capitalize on North Korea reaching out. Same thing happened with Burma. The Burma, Myanmar. Uh, China has no California. That's uh, one of China's biggest problems. You may think, if you've been to California, that not having a California would be a fine thing especially if you're taxed in California, which I am, because uh, you saw I have a Stanford affiliation also. So um, my wife works at Harvard, and I live in New York and work in New Jersey, so I pay jurisdiction in every... I pay taxes in every single high-tax jurisdiction. (laughs) Massachusetts, New Jersey, 
New York, and California. That's right. I'm a genius. <laughs> I couldn't be more overeducated, and look where I am. Yes, that's right. That one didn't work out. But anyway, so uh, wh- wh- where was I? Was I saying anything? California, China. You get lost in these ridiculous lectures that you end up giving. This venue is so good, I could stay here the whole week. What are you guys doing this weekend? (laughs) Dale, how much more time do we got? Two days? Yeah, I could go on. All the questions are excellent. We got a climate change question. Uh, We got uh, Germany and Russia. Uh, we um, We got one I won't say. It's uh, how am I going to get my kids into college? (laughs) Which coach am I buying at which university? Anyway, thank you so much for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at NYHistory. Or visit us at nyhistory.org.